Welcome back to the first Supreme Myths podcast of 2024. I am uh, exceptionally excited today to talk to Professor Maybel Romero at Tulane University. She is the McGlinchey Stafford Associate Professor of Law. She's an expert in criminal law, criminal adjudication, ethics. She's a graduate of <laughs> Cornell and Berkeley. I think she is one of the I'm going to call you a young scholar just because I'm 65, you know, and really, oh. um, um, she's a tenured professor, but um, she is, I think, one of the great young scholars in our country writing about really important things. Um, welcome to the podcast, Mabel. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm really excited to talk with you. So this is the first time, and I think this is 108 or 109 podcasts, I don't know, but this is the first time I'm going to give a little bit of a... Um, uh, I don't. I, I don't like the phrase "trigger warning," but I. I, I wanted. I do want to tell people that we are going to talk about some serious issues about rape and sexual abuse. Um, and and Maybell has graciously offered to talk about her experiences with those tragedies, um, type of things. So so um, that's that's coming for those of you listening. I want you to know that's coming. So you just wrote a law review article called "Ruined," or you, it just recently was published, um, uh, and it is one of the best law review articles I've read in 33 years. I don't say that lightly. Um, it is original, which is really hard to do. It is personal, which is often not allowed in law review articles. I have written some personal things and gotten taken to the task for it. Um, I think the personal belongs there. And um, everything you do in this article, I think, is exactly how legal scholarship should go. There'll be controversy about that, I think. But I think that's my belief. So let's start with this. You are, you, you, before you became a law professor, you were a prosecutor and your personal experiences clearly shaped how you did that job, how you perceived that job. That's one of the points you make in this splendid article. So why don't we begin with your personal story and the trauma of that and then move on to how you became a prosecutor and why you became a prosecutor. So I grew up in Long Beach in California and I want to at least give a little bit of a physical and geographic setting sure. just so that happen makes sense, at least some sense to people, right? Um, I grew up in Long Beach, California in the 1980s um, with my mother and my biological father. And I think by all appearances, we seemed like a very normal family, working class Latino family uh, on the up and up. My, my dad was a um, auto body mechanic. My mom, for a while, was a stay-at-home mom. We were able to actually rent a whole house to ourselves. Everything <laughs> seemed good. We, we girls went to school and seemed to like school, and we were all very, like, good kids, right, quote-unquote. Um, but people didn't realize that there was, there was a lot going on in our personal lives, including the fact that, um, and you'll have to excuse me because it's always difficult talking course, about this rather than necessarily writing about it, um, that my biological father was abusive in a number of ways, but also sexually abusive. Um, I'm and so it sorry. was a really, I appreciate that. And it was a really strange situation because sometimes some people who engage in this sort of behavior will, you know, abuse all their kids or they'll target one kid. In my family, it was me, right? Um, so. My younger sister, for example, for a long time, didn't even know what happened, um, which was a, a very strange dynamic in our relationship. Yeah. Um, but my father um, sexually abused me, raped me, and also trafficked me to and, his friends around Southern California. So, and, and, I mean, you know, well, I have to, I have to, I have to ask, I have to ask you, because it's so, it's so prominent in the article. At what age did this begin? 
I, it's hard to pinpoint when you're a little kid, sure. right? So sometimes I think about trying to figure that out, events and everything that happened sort of in the periphery that I remember. So I could kind of point out a cousin's quinceanera or something like that. Like that. So I'd guess around four or so, something I mean, like that. that's just, you know. um, like, It's to the point where I, I can't really remember much in my life before that, right? So it's part of my life that I just can't untangle it from everything that I do or what I think about or how I see the world. It's always been there. Um, and it, it's a part of my life, no matter what I want to do or how much I've tried to ignore it in the past. So this was just normalized, I guess. I, I just thought that perhaps this was just something that other kids went through or maybe it was my fault. And I had a really hard time trying to figure out why this was happening to me, right? Sure. Um, but a lot of what I tried to do because of that was realizing, okay, I'm in this family, I'm in this neighborhood, um, which wasn't exactly the greatest neighborhood. I need to try to figure out how to get out of this. So what can I do? I can excel at school. I'm good at school. I get a lot of validation from school and everything is normal at school. Generally, adults respect me at school. They don't do terrible things to me at school. Sometimes they're kind of, they can be mean or crotchety, but compared to this stuff going on, it's sure. a big deal, right? Um, so school became my outlet and this was something that, you know, I, I would find reasons to spend as much time as I could at school. And I feel like I knew a lot of teachers who facilitated that, who could tell there was something the matter, but couldn't put their finger on it. And they would help out with that. Like, well, do you want to come and work on this project or do this? Um, and that's so public school. I'm sorry, that's public school, right? Public school. Yes. So Thank goodness for public school. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we'll say that again because we're losing them left and right. But go yeah, ahead. I know. I know. And it like hurts me because, yeah. you know, it, it, heaven forbid if we didn't have public school or... Um, you know, even as a kid, public broadcasting was really important to me. You know, we right. didn't have money for cable or anything. So a lot of what I learned about the outside world that wasn't in my little sort of box, um, I learned from PBS, actually. Right. So seeing a lot of these things getting cut really yeah. is painful and sad. Yeah. Um, but yeah, thank goodness for school because it gave me that outlet and it and, gave me something to strive for. And may I ask, and, where, where was your mother in all this? So my mother, you know, eventually at some point, um, you know, had to go to work. So my father, like I said, was abusive. Initially, he was just sexually abusive to me. He started becoming financially abusive with my mother at some point, withholding money. So she was a stay-at-home mom, but then he started, like, cutting the budget and cutting the budget and cutting the budget to the point that, you know, she realized, okay, I've got to get a job, I guess. So she started working nights uh, as a CNA at a nursing home, a certified nursing assistant. Yeah. So. A lot of the work that you do is, it's really the important work, but very much seen as grunt work, for lack of a better way of putting it. You know, like lifting dead weight, essentially. And I don't mean to say say that in like a sort of derisive way. It's just people who sure. aren't you know, sure. mobile whatsoever, um, you know, doing a lot of like the cleanup work and everything like that. Um, so that's what she did all night and she'd come home and she'd be exhausted. So I think that she wasn't necessarily always keeping an eye on exactly a lot of the dynamics of what was going on, but also, you know, we were financially desperate. So I think she was really scared of. Did she know what your father like was doing? Did she know what your father was doing? Gosh, that's a really good question in that I've asked her before and, you know, she's re responded like, well, you, you know, in a very sort of like, how would I put it? Slippery way for lack of a better way of putting it. So I have my suspicions, right? Um, yeah, growing up, 
at one point she did teach me, you know, maybe this is going to sound so melodramatic, but she taught me to sleep with a knife under my pillow and to pull all the dressers in front of the door so that no one could get into the room. So wow. I'm like, okay. So she knew. Have some so sort she of knew. She suspicion, knew. right? So that that's a really sort of sore spot in our relationship now. It's like, okay, how do I navigate this where if you didn't know, I think you had some suspicion. And of course, on my end, I feel like nothing was really done about it. Right. So it, it, it sort of really poisoned a lot of my family relationships because of that. Like, how else do I put it? It's sort of like experience and this trauma almost feels radioactive. Sure. Right? No, like, of course. It makes sense. And, and I also I also want to say, you know, when we think about um, sexual abuse victims like yourself. Yeah. My mind, you know, immediately, of course, goes to the father, the perpetrator, his friends, the you know, and that all, of course. But I also want to say, Maybell, I hope you don't mind me saying this. Um, you know, this must be incredibly hard with your relationship with your mother who didn't protect you. And as a four-year-old, six-year-old, eight-year-old, you have every right to expect one of the adults in your house to protect you. And she didn't. And I, and I just... That's I, absolutely right. My heart breaks for you for that. I just, I can't even imagine. I appreciate that. And that's something that I really want to get across to people who read my work or who listen to this interview, in that everyone deserves safety. Every kid deserves yeah. parents who love them and will physically protect them. Uh, I've talked to a lot of other people who've gone through something similar who still feel very much like perhaps they've brought this on themselves or perhaps they are, were somehow uniquely bad deep down and that's how how and why this happened. No, that, that doesn't that doesn't logically track. That's not how this works. It, it, it's just you've been deprived of something that you deeply need and deserved. And it's it's tragic and it's sad. One of the things you don't say in the article, or you might have, and if I missed it, I apologize, is when it ended. Sure. When, when was the last, when, when, when did this finally stop for good? Probably when I was uh, eight or so. Oh, geez. Nine. I mean, that's just, that's almost what he did, what they did to you at that young of an age. I, words can't even, there's no words to even describe it. Okay. So, 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 um, at some point, very early on, according to this, to what, to what I've read, you, you decide to become a prosecutor, not at 15 or 20 or 25, but at a very early age. T tell us about that. In elementary school, yeah, it's actually. Incredible. So, it's amazing. <laughs> again, that kind of gets back to sort of my own exposure to what pop culture I had available to me at the time. So, um, again, I didn't exactly grow up with a lot of money or wealth. And we had cousins who lived next door who I remember watching my cousin um, go and, you know, shimmy up a telephone pole so that his house could steal cable. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought it was really amusing, but I remember my mother being like, we don't steal and that's bad. So we're just going <laughs> to watch it and get on the antenna and watch PBS. So I grew up watching a lot of, um, you know, old British TV shows on PBS. I grew up watching Perry Mason. Um, so a lot of my, you know, and other sorts of court procedurals. So a lot of my cultural knowledge at the time is very maybe like a few decades older than it, it, it normally would have been, right? Right. Um, so I remember just watching a lot of court procedurals and be like, okay, there's this thing called a prosecutor and that prosecutor gets bad guys. And I know a lot of bad guys and that's pretty cool. But then also my biological father explaining, you know, you can't talk to cops and you shouldn't talk to lawyers either. And it's like, well, what is that? What's a lawyer? 
It's like, well, there are special kinds of lawyers, prosecutors who send people to like prison and jail. And they're bad and they're, you know, you should never talk to them. And I could tell that he was scared of them, right? Um, so I think under certain circumstances, it's hard to disentangle respect from fear. It's like, okay, he obviously is scared of this person, respects this person. That's what I want. I want these people to fear me. So that's what I'm going to be. I'm going to be prosecutor someday. I'm going to get bad guys, right? So my my view of what the role was was very flat, right? Sure, you, sure. You get really bad like murderers and rapists and that, that's your job. And right. these are people who deserve to be in prison for forever. And, you know, my views, of course, have certainly evolved from then. But that's why when I was, you know, five or six years old, the, the job sounded very compelling. I knew that I didn't want to be a police officer. I saw them doing terrible things in my neighborhood every day. Sure. And it's like that, that's not the job I want, but a prosecutor. OK, that's, that's were you the job aware? Were you old enough for the Rodney King riots? Um, that happened when I was 10, actually. OK. Um, so I remember seeing that. And, you know, really being perplexed because we watched the news coverage and I remember the news coverage being very confused. Like, why would, quote unquote, these people do right. this to their neighborhood? Right. And it's like, well, how else are we going to get people to pay attention to what's happening to us? Because right. otherwise they don't. Right. Um, you know, the, the police are, you know, beating people and killing people, you know, with impunity every day. And I feel like there wasn't as much awareness of that at the time, or maybe there wasn't. People just didn't care as much. Right. Um, so, you know, the Rodney King riot was really sort of an interesting sort of inflection point in my life because I remember just seeing people's misery spill out. And I, I think that I think okay, I think exactly the video. About this? You know, I was an adult. Sadly, sad to say, I was pretty much an adult at the time. Um, but um, the video of the police officers just, you know, destroying that poor man um, affected, yeah. I think, a lot of people. It certainly affected me. I mean, it, it, it was the first That's... time I saw really with my own eyes, you know, the, the abuse. I, I knew about it, of course. And, um, all right. I have one last before I want to I, we do have to segue into this fantastic article and, the, and really its main point, which I want to get on the table. Before we do, I guess I have one last personal question type of question. Um, it'll sure. come back up. but. So are you, a, I don't, and I apologize, I, I don't have the right language, so I want you to help me. Are you a sexual okay. abuse survivor? Is that how you view yourself? Like what, what is the right terminology to convey the idea? And I don't even mean, I, I think there's a difference when an adult is tragically subject to sexual abuse, but when an eight-year-old, seven-year-old, six-year-old girl is, you know, my heart just breaks. Um, what, what is the right language to, to, I hate labeling things, but. You know, it is really hard sometimes to figure out what the right label is, and that's a large point of the paper. I think yes. it's funny that you're like, well, we're going to segue to your paper, yes. but we're doing that right now, of yes. course, and that I think everyone should be able to choose what language they prefer. So a lot of people prefer survivor, which I think is wonderful. Okay. They want to emphasize that this is something that, you know, they've come out the, the other end of it, and maybe they're still dealing with the after effects, but this is not something that's going to get them down, and, you know, they're getting through it. And I appreciate that, and I think that that's wonderful. I don't feel comfortable with that language for myself, is the thing. And I don't know how better to put this, but the saying that I'm a survivor feels overly optimistic. Yes. Like, yes. I, I don't know that I'm going to survive this long term. I'll yeah. be honest. It's something that really troubles me some mornings. There are some mornings where I wake up and I'm just like, I wish I weren't here because then I wouldn't have to think about this. Not that I'm going to do something terrible to myself or anything, but I don't feel like I've gotten, like, I, I don't ever feel comfortable with that language because a lot of other people have not survived it. 
And I feel a little strange trying to distinguish myself from those who have it. So I'm very trouble using the word victim. Victim, yeah. Yes, I'm a victim. And if you look at the sort of Latin um, origination of the word, it's just, it, it indicates someone who's blameless for what's happened to them. And I think that that's absolutely true. I'm totally blameless for what's happened to me. And this seems to fit a bit better than saying, okay, I'm a survivor to me. Yeah, I I, I am that I love that, and I'm, I'm that's how I'm going to view it because I do think you are, I think, suffering today from this abuse, and that you haven't. I mean, sure, you survived it in the physical sense, and you're an incredibly successful law professor. And by the way, your social media is great. Everything you know, your husband's great. You had this great. You had. I know your husband. You had this great life, but you are still a victim. That hasn't changed. I mean, so I, I, I agree with you about that. All right, so moving on. To, yeah, so moving on to Ruined. Um, you know, it's amazing how many times I've read or seen trans or, or you know, transcripts of, of trials involving rape. And the judge, at the end of it, in sentencing, tells the defendant, you know, what a horrible, you know, thing he did. Usually he, what, you know, what he did was horrible and terrible and often uses words to describe the victim that I, pri prior to, this is the thing, your article changed me. And this has been like seven law review articles in history. I'm doing this 33 years that have changed me. Your, your law review article literally changed me. Um, because I would hear judges saying things like, you know, you, you, you ruined this woman, title of your article, you've broken yeah. her, she, all this stuff, which I always thought was just sympathy and empathy and a good thing. And you've convinced me it's not. So go ahead. The thesis of this piece. I really do think that using this language comes from a good place. Yeah. I want to make that very clear before sure. I start talking more about it. I don't mm -hmm. necessarily think that judges are in chambers trying to figure out what they're going to say at a sentencing hearing and being like, I'm going to say something outrageously sexist sure. or something like that. Sure. I don't think that's what's happening. I think that they are trying very, very hard to be empathetic yeah. and sympathetic and to really emphasize that this is a serious harm that's been done to this victim. And I'm going to use the terminology victim here, yes. um, but I want to make it clear that if you want, if someone listening to this refers to themselves as a survivor, uh, that's the language that you should use. Sure. Um, but they don't realize that oftentimes victims are in the courtroom and other people who are in the courtroom who've had stuff like this happen to them are also listening to this and hearing, oh, you know, I thought that, you know, I was living my life okay and, you know, I'm actually, you know, pretty successful in life and I don't feel ruined or broken or destroyed. This is a terrible thing that's happened, but don't tell me that my life is over. Right. And don't do that with the imprimatur of the state saying this from the bench, especially. Right. I think that that's something that's really problematic. So really what I'm trying to do is get people to think about the language that they're using and think about where this is coming from, because I really do think that this language descends from, you know, hundreds of years of, um, you know, sexism that's sort of baked into the law, hundreds of years of assuming that women are lesser than men, if not their property, um, hundreds of years of um, this sort of patriarchy that sort of infests every bit of the law, especially the criminal the criminal law and especially rape law. Um, and that, that that's something that we need to be much more aware of and we've got to really be thinking about what we say and how we say it and who we're saying it for. I've talked with judges about this and I asked them, well, if you use this language, who are you trying to broadcast this to? What are you trying to say? 
And they emphasize to me, look, I want the victim who's in the room to know that I feel for them and that this is really difficult. And um, I couldn't possibly understand how bad this must have felt and you know, for them and what a terrible experience this is. But I asked them, well, why don't you just say that? That would be a lot more useful. Yes. Like I recognize the horrible harm that has happened. I'm sorry yeah. that this happened. Yes. I can't even imagine how terrible this would be. That would go a really long way, I think, to people like me feeling like, oh, you actually understand what I'm going through. Right. And this was a real, something that was really difficult hearing over and over and over again as a prosecutor because I prosecuted these cases. So I've got this really, I think, unique perspective on this having been a victim having prosecuted these cases um, and seeing this on, you know, through different lenses in that respect and different experiences where, you know, I thought that I was a successful attorney and that I was doing my job well. And it was hard to keep hearing judges essentially telling me that, you know, maybe there's something wrong with me for not being more broken, you know, quote unquote, or right. ruined or not being more depressed or something right. like that. Right. So that was really hard because it made me start wondering, like, is there something else that's wrong with me that I am not crushed by this? I, um, I, I do want to talk about when you were prosecutor, but but just sorry to interrupt. But you, you made a point no. in your piece that I think is so important that I also had not reflected on, even though I thought about these issues in different ways. Um, the whole idea that, that when a woman is raped, something is taken from her. Is, 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 you know, again, if you're talking about this before I read your piece, I would have said, well, yes, yeah, something was that humanity was taken, you know, I mean, just, but, 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 but you, in your piece, you talk about how that sexualizes women in a way that is not positive or helpful going forward. Can you make that argument? Cause I love, I love that part of this article. I thought it was so powerful. So it's interesting thinking about the way that we think about rape, of course. And one of, you know, I want to make it very clear, of course, it's a terrible crime. It's a horrible thing to go through. But some of the focus that it gets and the things that really enrage people are, are it puzzles me because oftentimes what you see is people getting more angry about the fact that you know, someone has had their chastity taken right. from them right. or their virginity taken from them. And it's like, no, well, what what are you talking about? These are very outmoded right. notions of what should be important to us rather than, no, someone is harming me. And I think that a lot of people start making really great arguments with regard to, well, this impinges on my dignity rather than, oh, you've taken this, you know, you've deflowered me or something like right. that. So you, you see this language being used, especially in like the, if you look at cases in the late 1800s, early 1900s, where the real anger from some judges expressed in written opinions was, well, this person has been deflowered. It's almost like losing a property interest or something. Like, well, now you've taken this from her husband or, um, you know, if she wasn't married at the time, like, you know, her father, who was eventually going to bargain it away to a future husband or something like that. Right. So that I found incredibly troubling, but that was also kind of a, something that I felt still was happening in the sentencing hearings that I was seeing over and over and over again, where it's like, oh, well, you know, you have besmirched her. Yes. Essentially. Yes. Yeah. Um, and that I, that I found really troubling because it's like, no, they're still here, you know, and they're, they're still able to, you know, engage in a relationship and love and be loved. And there's nothing lesser about this person now. So yeah. that's what really 
troubled me. It was almost like talking about victims as if they had a decreased value. And, and you know, like I, a chair with a ding in it or something like that. And, and when I was reading your article, and again, all kinds of thoughts hit me, which is the sign it was a really good article, but and everybody should read it. Ruined. But um, thank you. I, I don't know how to express this, and I hope I don't get, I won't get, get myself in trouble expressing this this way. When I read your discussion of that issue in the piece, when I finished it, something hit me about we, we as as horrible, and no one is saying that it's not as horrible and terrible as, for example, priestly abuse of, of boys is, or or, yes. or when or when young males get sexually abused. You know, we view that. I, I mean, again, I, I don't. This is just off the cuff stuff I was thinking about. We don't view that as taking something away from that boy. We view it as as what it really is, which is an exercise of horrible power and aggression against the victim. We don't view yeah. it the same way with girls. And and I think, no, right. And I, I don't, I can't articulate it very well. Maybe you can do it better than I, I can, but there's something weird about it. There's something off, there's something sexist about that very thing that, that girls are losing something, boys are attacked. Is exactly. That, is that a fair, is that fair? I, I think that, you know, I'd have to think about that a little more, yeah. like, you know, this is making me think about, uh, you know, other things to write about, because as I acknowledge in the paper, um, you know, there are, you know, young men victims sure. and boy victims of rape. And um, I think that that's important to acknowledge. Um, but, you know, I, I've kept this paper limited to talking about women sure. specifically, you know, femme presenting people, um, because there's just a lot more work out there yes. to engage in. But yeah. so just statistically, it happens to sure. women and girls a lot more. Yeah. Um, so I'm not trying to discount this happening to, you know, boys or men. But I think that you do see them handled very differently. So say for, you know, you brought up priestly abuse, for example. I, I You know, now I'm thinking specifically about, um, you know, teacher abuse. Sometimes you see... Um, you know, women teachers who have sex or abuse yes. their male yes. students or something yes. like that. And you see these sorts of sick reactions of like, oh, good for him or right. something like that. Right. And it's like, what's wrong with you? We're talking about a child. <laughs> right. There is a very, very different reaction, I think, when you're talking about boys and young men where, yeah, you don't have this thing that's been taken from them or you don't have this like reduction in value. Yeah, it's and, and, and I want to be happened. clear, I brought this up not to talk about the boys, but for the light that it yeah. sheds on how we treat girls and the whole yes. idea that something has been taken from them. What is that something? That something doesn't exist for men, and that's a horrific double standard, I think. Yes, exactly, exactly. You know, so I, I think you are right in that respect. And, you know, in some circumstances, some people even act like, oh, you got something great out of this, which is right. horrible. Yeah. It's terrible. So, so, you, um, so you, you know, were you became a I'm, you are a prosecutor you became a prosecutor in a very rural jurisdiction is that right? Relatively, yes. Yeah. So I was a prosecutor in Cache County, Utah, which is in the extreme north of the state. It borders uh, with Idaho. Right. And I lived in Logan, Utah, which at the time had a population of like. 40 something thousand. So it wasn't large, but the rest of the county was very rural. So Logan was the county seat, kind of mm -hmm. in the center of everything. And then there were all these towns around it that had like maybe 300 people or 400 so people. So I don't view like that as, as a hotbed of criminal activity necessarily. But am I wrong You'd about that? You'd be surprised. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I'm, 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 did, did your colleagues in the office know your past? No. You didn't tell them. Absolutely not. You didn't tell them. I didn't tell anyone back then. That was all locked down. Like, oh, I'm that, sorry. I didn't realize. That. When did the, when did you? Oh my goodness, that's a whole different conversation. When's the first time you articulated this 
to um, someone not a family member? Probably um, on my first marriage, you know, so in law you, school. So all the way to being an adult, this breaks my heart. I mean, all of that inside well, of you the, for for that long. I don't. It's a shameful thing. Like people act like it's a bad thing, and you don't talk about it, and you don't express it, and you know. So I, I kept it a secret for a long time, and it was hard. And yes. I think that that's why this is article finally spilled out i wrote this article in three days um it does not read that like, way it reads like you wrote it over two years <laughs> I, I appreciate that i think you know i've been thinking about it for years yeah right so you know i, I kept it kind of locked down total secret told my ex-husband didn't really tell anyone else Ugh. you know got into academia and started teaching and then i'm teaching criminal law and having to talk about you know rape law every year and that's another strange lens. Well, not strange, but you know. Yeah, hold that thought. I, I want. I want to come back to that. Maybe I want to come back to that teaching moment. But I want. For but, sure. but I, because we, unfortunately we have limited time. I want to go back to the prosecution. So, did you prosecute sure. sexual abuse crimes? Yes. How did that make you feel? It was really difficult, um, and sometimes it felt like it felt really horrible because. I could see the way that the criminal adjudicative process was, how would I say, essentializing everyone's experiences, right? So you're taking one of these to trial and you very much have this incentive to try to make your victim the perfect victim, right? So you sit, you try to witness prep them, you try to get them to, you know, be sad, but not too sad. And it's okay if you cry, but don't cry too much. Well, you don't want to be totally flat in the affect because then people aren't going to believe it. And how are we going to get you to tell your story in chronological order? Because, you know, juries don't often don't understand traumatic memory, which sure. sort of pulls everything in sort of bits and pieces and not always in sure. perfect chronological order. Sure. So it felt horrible having to do that and trying to get people to sort of comport to this template of good victim um, that's going to play well in the witness box. Um, but, you know, at the time, I would try to reconcile this with, well, this is what we have to do to try to get this person justice. But oftentimes, what I found was victims, it really didn't benefit them. And, you know, more than anything, what they wanted was just making sure they never had any contact with this person again. And on an apology, they just wanted, like, some sort of acknowledgement of this horrible thing that happened to them. Um, so oftentimes, I felt like the state's interests were at odds with the victim's interests. I've never done this, but I've seen other prosecutors um, who would threaten to jail victims who didn't want to prosecute, like uh, who, who didn't want to testify. Excuse me, um, you know, telling them, "Well, you don't want to, you don't want to, you know, cooperate with my trial here." I guess. Well, then we're gonna have to send you to jail until you want to talk. Jesus, which was absurd. It's like, yeah. okay, way to traumatize this person all over again, right? Supposedly in their best interest. And so, you, you know, it taught me very, like, very quickly that look. The state's interests and the victim's interests, like, oftentimes never the twain shall meet. My, my colleague Clark Cunningham, years ago, I think, wrote pieces about what do defendants, what, what, do, what do people want out of the criminal justice system, the civil justice system. And he concluded mm -hmm. that one of the most important things is just to tell their side of the story. And our yes. system so often denied them that ability by lawyers saying, I can't put you on the stand, or if I put you on the stand, you'll be cross-examined, and I can't take that. Whatever mechanisms were at play. But really, more than conviction, they wanted to tell their story. 
Yeah, they just want to be able to tell that story to have people acknowledge that this is a sad and tragic and harmful thing that happened to them and not have to feel ashamed to tell it. And to be clear, and to be clear, we live in this world where you as a young girl, horribly abused by father and others, you're you're obviously incredibly intelligent, um, incredibly smart, incredibly sensitive. And yet, thank you. Our world is such that you couldn't even talk about that for decades. I mean, there was no support system for you to go to to do that. Just again, breaks my heart. I mean, it's just it, it's it's hard. And you know, I, I think like usually the solution that people offer is, well, you should go to therapy and talk to someone. And it, but it's always hard to like talk to a new person and have to like retread sure. everything when you new sure. like. Will this person? Will I get along with this person? And it, it, that's always hard too. So there is that sort of reluctance on the part, I think, of a lot of victims to go and do that even. Um, so it's just never easy telling this story. Yeah, um, I can imagine. I can't imagine. But, but yeah, you know, so I always felt terrible as a prosecutor trying to massage people's stories into something that was packaged for a jury that they could consume. It was a very strange experience, and. I tried to do it in as sensitive a manner as I could. Sure. And sometimes the victims I was working with could tell that. Um, and one of the sort of shocking experiences I had as a prosecutor was um, I was having to witness prep a, a teenager um, who had gone through something similar. And she stopped and she asked me, this happened to you too, didn't it? Yeah. And I was sort of thrown back on my heels a bit. Like, why do you say that? And she's like, well, you don't ask questions about it like a jerk, like the cops do or the other prosecutor. And you're actually like patient with me and stuff like that. So I, you had to have gone through something. What'd you similar. say? And I lost it is what I did. I was like, you know, that that's really nice of you to say, you know, yeah. do you want something from like the vending machine? Let me go get you a Coke. So I, I got up and I just went to the bathroom and cried. Ugh. Right. Right. It's like, I, I don't want her to see this and like right. have her worried that she made me cry or something. Right. right. This is a kid automatically think oh, I did something wrong. Right. right. I, I didn't want that to happen. Right. Um, let's shift gears just a little bit in the interest of time, because a lot of this article, in addition to everything we've just talked about, and I, I want to repeat it, that judges should be much more careful than they are in the words they use to describe sexual abuse victims, especially, I think, girls. Um, and that's really the main point of the piece. But also, and, and, it's, and it's really wonderfully done. But the other part of the piece that made me think a lot, you're very pessimistic about the possibility of so-called progressive prosecutors, and you're very pessimistic about the prosecution world as a whole. Now, before I ask you this, I want to say to the audience, so I have had on this podcast people like Clark Nelly. Clark works for Cato. Clark and I disagree about just about everything under the sun. Uh, but he's, a, I think, a very good person. And, and uh, I respect his intelligence, his judgment, even when we disagree. But on these issues, we do agree because he has pointed out to me for years now, plea bargaining is a disaster. Prosecution offices are a disaster. Um, and he, and, he's, and, and, and he really does good work on that. I don't like a lot of what he does, but that's really, really good and important work. Yeah. And there are other conservatives also, I think, who are pointing this out as well. So before you start, I want to be clear, this is not a partisan issue, I don't think. I think this is an issue that we all need to think about more than we do. And it doesn't fall into the stereotypical blue-red liberal conservative, you know, um, machine. And I'm glad it doesn't. Yes. So 
Tell us what, why you're pessimistic about the idea of progressive prosecutors and what stands in the way of our prosecutors doing better jobs. So I, I, I am very, how would I put it? I mean, you said pessimistic, yeah. and I'm like, yes, I'm, I'm very just generally negative about the prosecution role. Yeah. Having done it for years, even apart from this job, I, I did it part-time in a small county. And I, it was really concerning to me when I started seeing a lot of people running on these progressive prosecution sorts of campaigns. Not that I wasn't grateful that they were thinking of how to do the job better, but the job is always going to be reactive. It's always going to be backward looking. It's always going to be figuring out, okay, now what do we do that the, you know, now that this person did X, Y, or Z bad thing? So I, I'm sorry, but there's nothing progressive about that in, right. <laughs> in, the, in the least. It's like, no, we're always constantly reactive. That's what we do. Uh, and you know, apart from that, I guess we're using the word pr progressive as some sort of political indicator as to what you know, the, the prosecution priorities are here. But I do worry in that it's almost a, a sort of patting oneself on the back sort of term in some sort right. of ways. Like, okay, I didn't prosecute as many drug offenders. That makes me progressive. I'm so good. Vote for me. And I feel like it gives another way for people to hide behind, you know, this term saying uh, I'm doing this great job, you know, and I think it's become meaningless over time. Yeah. You know, you, you do anything little that's a bit different and you can call yourself progressive. I also think that it's off-putting to a lot of um, populations where, you know, more conservative populations who might be interested in issues with regard to criminal legal system change um, will just hear progressive and not want anything to right. do with it, right? right, like, right. I, I don't want this. It sounds like some sort of Democrat plan or something right, like that. Right, they they right. don't want to touch it. Right. You know, and I, I use Democrat very intentionally. They, sure. they use that weird term. Sure. Uh, you know, so I think what it, it, it's unfortunate because I think that we don't necessarily benefit by labels here. I think it's better to just be very open, like these are my priorities, this is what we're doing, rather than trying to say, oh, it's reformist or it's progressive, so, so, because so, those terms end up losing meaning and just be becoming things that people are scared of and are kind of useless, frankly. So I want to ask you a question about that, and, and we're going to go off script here, so I apologize. You know, sure, I, sure. As, as I've said to on this podcast often, I, I send a very general roadmap, but we always end up going off script, and that's what I'm going to do right of now. Um, so what is your, so in Georgia, you know, there's this big, I, I was actually on a panel a few months ago about the, uh, a Georgia law that tries to, to, to strip prosecutors of power if a certain <laughs> committee wants to. Um, but that's not what I want to ask you about. That, that is a big issue in Georgia, and, and there's a lot of procedural infirmities. But what I want to ask you about is, so if a prosecutor in, let's say, rural Georgia, says, you know what, mm -hmm. I'm just not going to prosecute abortion cases. I don't care that it's that abortion is illegal in Georgia now. I'm just not going to do it. It's not, it's against my principles. Yeah. I have other priorities. I want to know, and I'm very ignorant about these kind of things. I've been learning more and more to deal with this Georgia situation, but is that something you think is in, is a correct move for a prosecutor who feels that way? And do you think it is permissible then for the head of all of that in the state, which is almost always the attorney general of the state, to say, no, you can't do that. We're not, that. We have different priorities at the state level. And as a local rural prosecutor, you're not allowed to make that decision, which in fact is happening in Georgia. Um, I would be I would be very, very antsy about widely, uh, you know, announcing it okay. that I was doing, I think, okay. under those circumstances. Okay. And I think that there's a lot of debate as to how one should advertise what one is doing in the office, right? So 
Um, a lot of people say, well, it's important to be transparent and tell people when you're campaigning what you're going to do and what you're not going to do. There are other scholars, um, and I think I think I include myself in this camp at this point just because I want to see changes happen where maybe you keep some of that close to your vest and you just do it, right? Um, so you don't necessarily need to be announcing, I'm not going to prosecute these, just right. don't prosecute Right. 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 Um, right. And, and this is in your purview because you have prosecutorial discretion issues, what you want to prosecute and what you do. Things in Georgia are a little bit weird right now, given some of that um, the Senate bill that I yes. guess, you know, is now yes. law. Yes. Uh, I was recently at the Burge conference to talk about this. So yes. I, I'm glad you bring this. Up. Yes. Um, but I, I think that it's really improper for some centralized, you know, an attorney general or something like that to come and try to dictate to local prosecutors, this is what you're sh you should be doing. These local prosecutors have been elected oftentimes by their, you know, local constituencies who have done, who've done so knowing what they're going to get. I presume that the electorate in any rural place, just like any urban place, is, you know, well-informed and knows what they want and knows who they're going to choose. Right. So to come in and be like, no, you rural prosecutor or any prosecutor who wants to make these choices, um, you don't get to do this strikes me as and I don't like using this language willy nilly, but I, I am going to apply this here. Very anti-democratic. Right. right. Like right. I'm going to supplant your wishes, local electorate with my priorities. And I also think what came, what, what what we touched about in the, in the panel I was on that I thought was interesting was so, you know, the only reason I think that Georgia today bans abortions is because of gerrymandering. If it wasn't for a gerrymandered legislature, I don't even think that would be a law in Georgia, which is yet another reason. And that's true for a lot of states, I think, in, in states yep. that are, I, in, you know, in states that aren't as badly, even red states that aren't as badly um, gerrymandered, abortion wins in, in every, you know, on every, in every yeah. poll. So it seems like that would that that adds fuel to what you just said that that. We wouldn't be, the prosecutor wouldn't be in the position of having to make this decision if it wasn't for a gerrymandered legislature to the max to begin with. Does that make sense? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I yeah. absolutely agree. And, yeah. you know, seeing the way that, you know, gerrymandering is happening in some states to try to get these results or seeing, you know, a, a more centralized authority like an attorney general trying right. to dictate from, from on high. Right. This is what you do, prosecutor. It really worries me in that I feel like it's also a, a flattening of local cultures yes. in some sort of way. Yes. Where it's like, okay, you know, this rural, rural town might not have the same priorities as this rural town or this rural county, and they should be allowed to be able to choose for right. themselves what's good and what's not. And to be forcing everyone to be in lockstep, I think is really, really concerning. It really worries me. And it really ignores the fact that not every rural place is the same as the other. Right. Each one has its own priorities. Each right. one has its own culture. Um, but, you know, there might be some char characteristics that are similar, but to try to force them all into one box, it really troubles me. And I think I would throw into that, I don't want to, I, 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 this would take another hour, so I don't want to talk about it, but in Georgia, it's all bound up in race, too. I mean, it may yes, not be in every state, but in, but in Georgia, it is absolutely bound up in race. Um, yes. When I read through your article, another thought hit me, uh, and this is a personal one um, yes. by you. So I, I have a friend who, um, one, of the, one of Atlanta's best lawyers who recently retired, um, whose daughter went to work, you teach at Tulane, which is in New Orleans. And she yes. went to um, be a kind of paralegal type person in the New Orleans Public Defender's Office. She didn't survive it. It caused her mental illness um, because of what she saw. 
and I think it is pretty well established, I don't think this is controversial, that the New Orleans prosecutor's yeah. office specifically is one of the worst, and U.S. Attorney's Office, both, state and federal, are among the worst in the country. Um, the Supreme Court had a horrific case involving um, a prosecutor who clearly did all kinds of terrible things, putting innocent people in jail, and, and they dismissed that case. Horrible situation. Um, and I was thinking how hard this must be for you to, 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 I mean, you know, Atlanta has its problems, but I think, frankly, we have a very good U.S. Attorney's yeah. Office, a very good federal public defender, a pretty good state. Yeah. Public, you know, but New Orleans does not. Has that affected you in any personal way? It's more troubling to hear from the students who, say, have to interface with the office. Maybe they're doing work with the public defender's office or even the ones who are in the office who sometimes come to me with concerns, yeah. right? And they feel like, okay, I've been there. I know what that's like. And, you know, my heart goes out to them. So in that sense, it does still affect me. And it's also very interesting teaching um, criminal procedure adjudication here in that I feel like <laughs> or, you know, in criminal specific ethics, I, I teach a seminar on that too. When I get to, especially talking about discovery abuses and the, all the cases are from here. Right. Yes. So, yes. Um, so I'm like, oh gosh, this is like horrible and embarrassing. And it, honestly, though, I'm so grateful to my students who take these classes because then they're able to share with me their experiences that they've had working in these, you know, in this office or in these, you know, these offices as well, you know, at the federal level as well. Um, and some of the things that they've seen and some of the things that trouble them. So I feel like my scholarship and my teaching is much enriched by the things that they bring to the classroom, the things that they share with me. Is it, so, is it, it as bad as people say? Uh, yeah. yeah, that's what <laughs> no one's ever said no to that question. I've asked that question to a bunch of people. Uh, no one's ever it's, said it's, it's not great. Right. <sighs> and I feel like you're starting to see more people come to Tulane to study crim law specifically because they know that it's a locus of a lot of bad stuff. Yes. Right. Yes. So it, 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 you know, I, I'm excited to welcome them to the class. That's I'm excited great. to teach. So them. I have another it's hard really and I have another hard question for you. Um, so now that this article has been published. I find that, that a, a pretty healthy percentage of my students know my political views and my legal views long before they get into the classroom. Now, part of that is I've been doing it th 33 years. You've been doing it much less than that. But still, I imagine your future students will have probably, some of them, will have seen this article, which raises the question to me when you teach the substantive criminal law of rape and sexual abuse, or, or even criminal procedure cases surrounding rape and sexual abuse, do you now disclose to your students that you're a victim? Do you? Um... Yeah, I do. I, I assign them my article. Right. Like, well, let's Good. read it and talk about yeah. it. So, you know, I, I think, and I did not have this experience in my 1L crim law class, thank goodness, but I've heard a lot of other people who tell me that when their professor got to teaching rape, if they did it at all, because a lot of people are axing that material from their class. Yes. Um, you know, oftentimes, They'd lead off saying, well, you know, one in, you know, whatever statistic, you know, one in four, one in five. It depends on the year, right? right. Um, people, you know, have been sexually abused or molested or raped. So, you know, keep in mind that one in four of you in this classroom have like likely gone through this. I'm like, that's a horrible thing to say. I don't <laughs> want like people thinking about like who's in the room who's gone through this or if you're right. in the room, like oh gosh, that's me, and now everyone can tell by the look on my face or something right. like that. So I, I want people to understand, I want my students to understand coming into the class that, yes, you're going to be interfacing with people, you know, in your life who've gone through this, 
I'm not going to focus this on you. That's me. I'm the person. I'm leading the class, and I've gone through this. So we don't have to do this weird exercise of thinking speculatively who in this room has right. gone through this because I will just put myself out there and say, yeah, this is me, and this is what I've gone through. And That is so brave. I just, want to, I just want to interrupt you. It is just okay. so brave of you to do that, and I admire it so Thank much. Thank you. It, it, it's like, look, if we're going to be thinking about rape and talking about rape in our class, which I, I have not asked it. I refuse to ask it for my class because right. it's important, Yeah. and we need to talk about it. Um, we've got to think about what we're saying. We have to think about the language that we're using. We've got to be respectful to each other when sure. we're talking about this material. Um, and so I think leading off with this article and talking about my experience certainly sets that tone, I think. I would think um, so. Um, a few years ago, yeah. I would think so. A few years ago, um, I was at a conference on constitutional law, but there was a teacher there from University of Alabama. Alabama, uh, I want to emphasize. Alabama. <laughs> and, yeah, she, and she, yeah, I want to emphasize, it. Alabama. And she told me she, that she stopped teaching rape in criminal law. And I said, why would you do that? It feels like that's incredibly important. She said, I had no choice because yeah. um, the students' demand for how I teach it is such that I can't teach it in a way that's honest and that will help them. But if I teach it the way they want, if I don't teach it the way they want me to, there'll be scandals and controversies and I'll be defending it you know, for the rest of my career, and I don't want to do that either. And it breaks. And she was saying it breaks my heart. But the the better choice is not to teach it at all than to teach it poorly. And yeah. I, and I thought, wow, that's just heartbreaking. And I, and and I, I don't, you know, I don't like the idea that students can get that result. It, it, it's troubling to me that they can dictate the way that they're being teached in that yes. to that. In that respect, yeah. and to that degree, and we right? both agree, obviously, it's, that teachers teaching rape need to be really sensitive. They need to read your article, exactly. read your work, but that doesn't mean. <laughs> but but we shouldn't cater to the most sensitive. I don't think in a censorship kind of way. Yeah, you know, I don't necessarily think that. Maybe when she was talking about that, she was talking about people being overly sensitive because I don't think that there's necessarily oversensitivity to this. It, it That's a bad sensitivity word. I take thing. back. I, I didn't mean that word. No, no, no. I, I, I don't think that I'm not trying to say, oh, you said something bad so much as I think that there are a lot of people who honestly approach this in sort of a crass manner, yeah. you know, and they demand that. It's like, no, we want to hear about why women deserve it or something right. like that. Right. So I thought at BYU as a VAP, which was you know, an interesting experience when you're teaching this material. Yes. And I came to class with a, a slide. For the non-lawyers in the room, BYU is, I suspect, not the most diverse law school in the world, sitting in not the most diverse city in the world. Go ahead. <laughs> it's very it's very conservative. And, you know, I, I loved my experience teaching there. I was very grateful to have it. There were some challenges, including the one that I'm about to talk about, and that I, you know, I had a student, you know, after, you know, doing the reading on sexual assault and rape, ask about, well, what are, the, you know, what are the causes of rape? Is it because, you know, a woman has done something bad or she's dressed too provocatively or something like that? And I think that the question was actually sincere on their part. So I was like, whoa, this is pretty That's even worse. Interesting. So like, <laughs> yeah, it was worse. But I showed up with a slide that was entitled Causes of Rape. And it had a pie chart filled in one color and it had like short skirts, alcohol, being out late at night. And the last one, which is what the pie chart was, which was rapists. Right. Because, yes, those, right. that's the that's cause That's awesome. Right. And I had, a, but I had a lot of pushback on that. Like, no, like we should be talking about ways that 
you know, Jesus. essentially that women bring this on themselves. And it's like, no, I'm not doing that. I'm sorry. That's yeah. not happening. That's, that's, um, that's horrific. That, that, that example is, is, is horrific. Um, so, you know, I think, you know, it, it was, I think a lot of people would have been like, no, I'm not going to teach this material anymore, but I, I'm really stubborn. And I'm like, well, now I'm just going to teach it more. Right. <laughs> you know? right. Good. We're going to have a longer unit because these, you know, some students need a lot of help on this. Um, really understanding what this is about. Um, but it is troubling that a lot of people feel circumscribed in like not teaching the material that the way that they want, if they teach it at all. And I do worry about folks who are at, you know, some state schools who might feel a lot more pressure with regard to accessing some of this material without any choice. Right. And that's really troubling to me. I feel very I lucky to be at a school where I'm very supportive and my students are really intellectually curious and want to learn things. Um, so that, that's really great. Um, so we've spent an hour talking about this and um, it's really like your article, like all of your work does. It, it, I, I hope people um, listen because it was really important. I, I want to end on a more kind of upbeat note if that's okay. Because, uh, you know. Um, sure, of course. But it's a hard transition because um, I yeah. want to say again to everybody, read, I very rarely do this, but read this article. It's called Ruined it's in Georgetown Law Journal, right? Um, and um, yes. it will change your life. It, it will change your perspective. And, and that's the, the hallmark of great scholarship. Less seriously now. Um, you also wrote a piece a while back, much less seriously, that I found fascinating and I loved for reasons different okay. than the reason why you wrote it. But um, so everyone probably knows by now that the Supreme Court has held that there's a constitutional fundamental right to marriage. Now, I find that yes. idea weird because marriage is a license the state gives out, and I don't know how that can be a fundamental right, but that's, I don't want to talk about that. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, but, agree, but, 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 but the doctrine is clear. The prisoners even have a fundamental right to marry. So, okay. You think <laughs> there should be a fundamental right to unmarry, and I'm a divorced person. Um, my wife's a divorced, my current wife's a divorced person, and um, we both left our first marriages with both partners wanting it to be over, with both partners being happy it's over, onto better lives. Yeah. Um, yes. Um, you and your husband, Brian Fry, who's also a law professor, are both second marriages, I believe, as well. Um, and I think he's a, this is his third, actually, okay, third for just Brian. to be clear. Okay. Um, talk about the, why you think the right to unmarry should be a constitutional right just as important as the right to marry. I think you make the case it's more important, but go ahead. I appreciate that. You know, and I, I want to get back to the point that you were making too, and that I don't necessarily think that the government should be meddling in marriage right. for the in the first place. Right. Um, you know, I, I'm like, okay, why do they hand out licenses to do this, and why should we care? But they do. Okay, right. so that's just the world that we live in. So we're accepting yeah. that reality yes. that that's what we're that's what we're dealing with, and that we have a constitutional right to do this, right? Um, so a lot of states actually very much limit when you get divorced. Right. So I think all states, I think virtually like, all states do actually in some way. I mean, some are much more like lenient than others, like, you yeah. know, classically Nevada, if we look at yeah. Nevada as like right. a historical example. Right. right? Yeah. But, you know, there are some states that make you wait for a year. Yeah. Um, North Carolina, I think, has a long waiting period. Exactly. So I've heard from, from a lot of North, you know, North Carolinians who've gone through this where you have to wait for a year before you can get a divorce, even if you're in a circumstance with your soon-to-be ex-spouse where you both want out, you are both not wanting to be married, maybe you're even friends, but this just isn't for you. And it strikes me as utterly absurd and completely not recognizing the dignity of making adult choices or even the dignity of the marriage that you've entered into to not be able to dissolve it when you want. 
to be able to have the state say, okay, you have to stay in this and we are going to compel you to do this until a year has been reached or until you reach, figure out everything about your property settlement or something like that, strikes me as utterly absurd. And I feel like without the ability to dissolve these relationships, to dissolve these choices that we've entered into um, with someone else, um, actually getting married feels very meaningless to me, okay? yeah. right? It's like, yeah. okay, it's this choice that's incented by the state and once you're in it, you can't get out of it. That just feels like, I don't know, that feels like the state treating us like children or something like that. And it angers me thinking about it. And the court, the court has- the, marriages. And the court has kind of recognized this in one sense in that um, there's a case out there that says that if the state has a fee, they have to pay to get divorced and you're indigent, you have a constitutional right not to pay that Exactly. Now, 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 there are people listening to this. I want to be very clear about something. The right to marry is not in the Constitution. The court made it up. I'm not yep. in favor. People who know this podcast know and read my material. I'm not in favor of the court making stuff up. That's not my. That's not what I. I, I like. Um, yeah, yeah, you're well known for that. I yes. thank you. But if they're going to make up a right to get married, they certainly should make up a right to unmarry because. Two people can live together and I mean, there are a lot of benefits you're denied if you're not married, but you can live together so, in peace and harmony and love and sex without the state's permission. But if you can't unmarry without the state's permission, then you, adultery in Georgia is still, you know, if you commit adultery in Georgia, even if your spouse knows about it and, and approves of it, it still means there's all kinds of implications for the divorce settlement eventually. Exactly. Yeah. Um, th there should be ways to say, okay, we're no longer married. We don't care what the state says. We are no longer married officially and today. And, and, exactly. And, yeah. Exactly. And you should be able to do that. I I say at the drop of a hat, whenever you want, as long as you know. Well, I'm like, okay, okay. I was like, oh, like going to attach some sort of like condition on that, but no, you should just be able to do it whenever you want. Yes. You know. Yes. So you might have property settlements to work out. You might have, um, you know, sorts sorts of child custody issues to work out. But you should still be able to be divorced and say, I'm not married to this person. Maybe the court still has jurisdiction over us such that we need to figure this other stuff out. But I should be able to move on with my life and say, I am not married. Um, I would think I am so. not in this relationship with this person anymore. Yeah. And and what's interesting is that the courts will sometimes say, and I saw this, you know, all the time in Utah doing family law. Well, no, you've got to figure out child custody. You've got to figure out, you know, who's going to get the house before I grant this, you know, a decree of divorce. Which made no sense to me. It's like, let people move on with their lives. They will oftentimes get along better and be happier just knowing that this bond has been dissolved and yeah. not feel that even and, I, and I'll tell you a personal story real fast. This will blow you away. Sure. Um, when I, so when I got, my, my, my ex-wife is gay. This is not a secret. And when we got divorced, it was very mutual and all that stuff. And we, I told her to get a, she didn't want to get a lawyer. I said, you have to get a lawyer just to look at the divorce. Should, yes. But we didn't pay them anything. And it was, everything was agreed upon. We agreed on everything, including as of the date of our marriage, the, the ending, the, the, you know, my, my 403B or 401K, whatever I have as a state employee, okay, you know, okay. um, we had to work that out. And in nine and in 49 other states, the way that would have worked out is we would have, we would have just done something called a quadro where you divide yes. up. They're complicated, but they're actually very effective because my wife, yeah. I, you know, she deserved half of the, my ex-wife, half of the money I had earned in retirement. Get this. In Georgia, if you right. work for the state of Georgia, you cannot do a quadro. Really? Yes. Huh. And that has caused, so right now, as we speak today, my, my, wow. my, my wife is 64 and, um, and we have a daughter, but, you know, we, we had a daughter um, and I have a contractual obligation upon 
terminate uh, upon my retirement to turn over to her the amount of retirement we figured out she deserved at the state of the divorce. Yeah. But that's not, that's just contractual. The state of Georgia yeah. would not allow me to do it officially at the time of divorce, which just goes to again, we we that that caused delays. Like we were ready to be divorced. We had told our yeah, teenage daughter then we you were, had to figure this stuff out. Now, and now we it got delayed six months because lawyers were like, "Oh my God, what do we do now?" If we never come across this, it's this bizarre, arcane feature of Georgia law. But as you said earlier, so North, North, North Carolina, I think, has a long waiting period. So do other states. And I, I just want to make this clear one more time. I don't think the courts, I'm going to use a bad word in a second. I don't think the courts should be making that shit up. I just don't. And I've written that a million times. But if they're going to make <laughs> no, shit, but if they're going to, the right to unmarry should be at the very top of that list. You have convinced. It absolutely should be. Yeah. Yeah, you know, here's the thing. Like, I think some courts actually do it um, for their own self-benefit as well. Yes. So the article starts out with a story of me trying to get my divorce finalized in the state of Illinois. So this all happened during the pandemic. And I had moved down to Kentucky to live with Brian, but I was still a resident of Illinois, right? And, you know, we're talking about residency yes. requirements and everything. Yes. So I had filed a petition, um, you know, for divorce. It was uncontested. My soon-to-be ex-husband was on board we let the court know this and they're like well that's going to be at least five months it's like well why well we need to schedule a hearing where you appear in person it's like, well, but we're in the middle of the pandemic it's like well yeah that's why everything is scheduled out so far because everyone's appearing in person we're making sure the courtrooms aren't crowded it's like well why do we need a hearing <laughs> and why do i need to pay for one on top of that i was talking with the clerk and they're like oh honey that's how we stay in business I was like, whoa, oh, okay, gosh. I actually have an admission that uh, uh, that this is motivated by having the court wanting to have business and funding itself. So I thought that that was fascinating. And I think that that's something that we don't think about a, a lot of the time. Like, okay, what are the organizational interests in having these sorts of rules and, you know, incentivizing, you know, the, the court wanting to schedule a hearing after hearing just so that they could justify their own existence? That is just, that's a crazy, terrible story. Um, this has been... <laughs> I, as I said, I've done over a hundred of these, and um, this honestly has been one of my favorites. Um, I know we talked about really hard stuff, and your courage in doing that is inspiring. The article is called "Ruined," but actually, your entire body of work—I shouldn't—I don't want to reduce you to one article because you've done a whole body of work that is Thank you. really tremendous, and you know, befits a chaired professor at Tulane. Um, so everybody should read your work, but 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 I also want to say, very few law review articles change how I think about things, and and yours did. And that's, I consider myself a pretty progressive feminist, but not, this put me, I, I realize how far I have to go <laughs> after reading. That means uh, a lot to me. Thank you so much. Well, it's really true. And thanks so much. And I, and I, I, I know people are going to love this and be moved by it. So thank you for coming on. No, thanks for having me on. This has been really lovely.